Let's open our Bibles now together to Mark chapter 7. We're not getting back into Romans just yet this morning since it's Reformation Sunday. Generally on that Sunday we address some topic uh, related to that. Mark chapter 7, once you have found it, let's stand up together in honor of God's word. We'll be reading the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines... The commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything. For his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we confess as we gather together as your people that sin has played such a role in our lives that even as we seek to live lives of obedience to you in this world, we find ourselves and our our thinking clouded. Pray this morning in your kindness to us by your spirit, you convict us of sin. Help us to renounce it and to turn from it and to run to you. And we pray by your spirit, Lord, you would grant to us the assurance of our salvation that we just spoke of, that you would grant to us the ability to hear and to receive and to apply and to obey your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, today is Reformation Sunday. It's the Sunday closest to October 31st. October 31st, 1517 is the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and it became the spark that launched the Protestant Reformation. And we're not going to talk this morning all about the Reformation. If you missed the adult Sunday school class, though, you missed a good one, uh, talking about what was going on with Luther. And really, uh, what Brad did was um, steal my thunder this morning. For that, I greatly appreciate him. Uh, what What a great class we had this morning. The central issue of the Protestant Reformation was the issue of authority. 
What is our authority? Will we order our lives? Will we order our church according to the word of God? Or will we submit ourselves to the word of man? This was an issue of central importance in the first century, as we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. It was the defining issue of the Reformation, and it is just as important and vital and relevant for us today. Luther and the Reformers were not trying to throw out all tradition. They were just saying it shouldn't be treated as authoritative. It shouldn't even come close to to the way we view Scripture. And in any case where, where tradition contradicts Scripture, then tradition should be flatly rejected, should be thrown out entirely. Luther, of course, was battling with the Roman Catholic Church, which was immensely powerful in his day. Their teaching to this day continues to be what it was in his day. The, the, the Second Vatican Council says this, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For both of them, flowing from the same divine wellspring, in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. We talked a lot about that in the adult Sunday school class this morning, that teaching that has persisted throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's over and against this false teaching that Protestants hold to sola scriptura. The word of God alone is the one true and ultimate authority for the Christian faith. And and traditions are only valid when they come in line with scripture, when they come in line with what the Word of God has to say, because it has authority. The living Word of God has authority, and it doesn't derive its authority from any outside source. And so, sola scriptura is really the only way to avoid subjectivity. The subjectivity that comes and says, well, I think things should be this way, or this man here says, I think things should go like this, or this this council, or this church. It's the only way to ensure that we are standing on the solid rock of God's infallible word and not the shifting sands of man's word. And so in our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark chapter 7, we see the word of God and the word of men come into sharp conflict. It's an intense scene. The confrontation that happens here is a deadly one. It is deadly serious. This delegation of Pharisees and scribes has has come to deal with Jesus. That is why they have traveled from Jerusalem. Jesus is at the height of his popularity as we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7. He is famous. People are flocking to him from all over the place. They are bringing people to Jesus. If you read the surrounding context of this passage, which I would invite you not to do while I'm preaching, um, you will see that Mark gives us in rapid fire one thing after another, after another, after another. And Mark is, is giving us this feeling of it is a constant flow of people coming to Jesus, a constant stream of action. The people want to make Jesus their king. There is a movement growing here. And Jesus, for his part, is undermining the Pharisees at every turn. He is teaching actively against their 300 years of established tradition. He's a major threat. And so the Jewish authorities travel to investigate him. They travel from Jerusalem, Mark tells us, 
which is 90 miles away from where Jesus is at at this moment. It's like the the feds coming in from Washington, D.C. to see what's going on in our little church here. If they do that, they're serious about something. Really, though, they've come to isolate him. They've come to intimidate him. They've come to shut him up and to shut him down. They're hoping they're going to find some way that, that he's breaking the law so that they can arrest him and be done with him. And so this scene that we're looking at this morning is a standoff between these Jewish teachers of the law that have come to stop Jesus and between the Lord himself. Look again at verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, uh, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. So they've come to intimidate Jesus. They've come to stop Jesus. They've come to hopefully find something he's doing that's against the law. And they happen to notice something. Jesus' disciples are eating, but they didn't wash their hands first. This is not a matter. You might be thinking, like, that's me every meal. Shame on you. No, it's not a matter of hygiene that they're concerned. Boy, you guys are gross. We didn't know. Let's get the word out. Jesus and his guys are gross. That's not what's going on. This is a, it's a religious issue. They had not ceremonially washed their hands. And Mark tells us that, verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, and dining couches. So this action on the part of of the disciples of Jesus has given now the Pharisees what they were looking for. It's given something that they can accuse him of. Verse 5 says, The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They're really raising two critical issues that, that are still critical today. The first is, what is it that makes something sinful? What is it that makes something righteous and good? And what is it that makes something sinful or unclean or defiled in the eyes of God? And the second one is this issue we see carried over into the Reformation. By what authority do we live our lives? So if we're really going to understand this passage, and we're just jumping right into the middle of the Gospel of Mark, we need to understand something about these teachers of the law. If you remember this or... Many of you, I trust, have have heard this, that at the closing of the Old Testament, there is a period of 400 years of silence from God before the coming of John the Baptist. And it's during this time that we see a new class of people develop, legal experts. Throughout the Old Testament, we read time and time again of, of God's chosen people, Israel, breaking his law and what happens to them when they do it, they come under judgment. Various forms of judgment from God, but the one that they are most concerned about in this intertestamental period is, look, we were carried off into slavery because of this. We lost everything because of our disobedience to God. Other nations conquered us and enslaved us, and so they lived with great fear that that might happen to them again. There was great fear of breaking God's law because they didn't want to come under further judgment from God. And so these teachers of the law spring up during this time and they say, we're not even going to let people get close 
to breaking the law. If, if, if there's an edge of a cliff sitting here, we're going to build a fence 100 yards away from that edge, and then we never have to worry about falling off of it and receiving the, the due penalty for that. So they were not content with the law God had given through Moses. That wasn't enough for them. They weren't even content with the prophet's application of that law in the Old Testament. That wasn't enough either. They didn't want people to even get that close to breaking the law. And so they expanded the law of God. They built fences around it. They broke it down into thousands of different rules for every single minute little area of life. In other words, their thinking was, you don't actually have to think through this. You don't have to think through what's right and what's wrong and what pleases God and what doesn't. We will tell you. Here are the rules. Follow the rules. These traditions of the elders that Mark references here, it was called the Mishnah. It was was added to God's word, and it became the center of religious life for these Pharisees. Their life was not built anymore on the scripture. It was built on this list of rules because, in their thinking, contained in these is the scripture. We've just got something much bigger that we can build our lives around. Sounds very similar, doesn't it, to what we just read from the Second Vatican Council. Or, for those of you that grew up in Amish homes... We see this exhibited in all kinds of ways. But, so what was this teaching on hand washing? They come and they're like, we got them now. These guys didn't wash their hands before they ate. Again, this was not about hygiene. This was about ceremony. Before every meal and between each one of the courses, hands had to be washed, and they had to be washed a certain way. And to fail to do this, it wasn't just to be guilty of bad manners, It meant in the Jewish mind to be unclean in the sight of God, to be defiled. It was a serious thing. They even added in teaching of what might happen to you if you don't ceremonially ceremonially wash your hands in this way. You, you, You have opened yourself up to an attack from a demon named Shibta. This will bring disaster upon you. It'll bring poverty upon you. It'll bring sickness upon you. In their teaching, bread eaten with unclean hands was the equivalent of eating excrement. It was filthy. It was defiling. One rabbi who ate with unclean hands was excommunicated for the rest of his life. That's how seriously they took these rules that they have added to to God's word. And in the same way, all the vessels had to be ceremonially washed as well. Not the way I do dishes. I try to be quick. And I say, Jesus says, if you wash the inside of the cup, the outside is clean as well. And that's good enough for him. It saves me a little time. And my wife says, that's a faulty application of the scriptures. And I tell her, I'm the one who went to college for this. I don't. None of that's true. None of it. And I've got like too many notes, so this is, we don't have time for these shenanigans. I'm just so happy to be back with you, I guess. I'm giddy. So, so he talks in verse 4 about the, the, the cups and the pots and the copper vessels and the couches. The Mishnah had 186 pages on ritual washing alone. Many, many, many rules and traditions Following these rules was not a matter of physical cleanness. It was a ritual. 
It was a ceremony you did to get clean before God and to stay clean before God. And again, we have to remember this. It's essential to understand what Jesus is doing here. Because you hear bad preachers, unqualified preachers say things like, Jesus broke the law of God because of his love for you. That is blasphemous heresy. Jesus did not break the law of God. This was not the law of God. The Mishnah and all of its rules was not the law of God. When you see Jesus being accused of lawlessness throughout the Gospels, he's not breaking the law of God. He's breaking these dumb rules. He's he's transgressing these fences that they've built to keep them away from the law of God. It's the traditions of men, not Scripture. We need to have that firmly in our minds as we understand what's going on in this story. And so this clash between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's all about authority. By what authority will we live our lives? How do we know what's good? How do we know what's true? How do we know what defiles and what is sinful and displeases the Lord? And the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they look to these oral traditions of the elders as the authority. Just look at the language in this passage. Verse 3, traditions of the elders. Verse 4, many other traditions. Verse 5, traditions of the elders. Verse 7, commandments of men. Verse 8, traditions of men. Verse 9, your own tradition. Verse 13, your traditions that you have handed down. That is their authority. They pay lip service to scripture, but ultimate authority is these traditions from the famous rabbis that have been handed down to us. They even made the wicked claim that Moses on Mount Sinai had received two laws from God, the written law, but also this oral tradition that we follow. J.C. Ryle says this, the first steps of the Pharisees was to add their traditions to the scriptures as useful supplements. The second was to place them on a level with the word of God and give them equal authority. The last was to honor them above the scripture and to degrade scripture from its lawful position. Practically, the traditions of men were everything and the word of God was nothing at all. Obedience to the traditions constituted true religion. Obedience to the scripture was lost altogether. It is a mournful fact that Christians have far too often walked in the steps of the Pharisees in this matter. The very same process has taken place over and over again. The very same consequences have resulted. He is 100% right, and it's only more true now than it's ever been. It's why the Reformation battle cry of sola scriptura is so important. Whenever some other authority is placed alongside of the Bible, it only goes one direction. That authority increases and biblical authority decreases until it has virtually disappeared. You can see it clearly in Roman Catholicism. Its most visible features, the mass, the priesthood, the papacy, the confessional, they all come from their holy traditions and not from the Bible. And those are the most easily identifiable things about this religion. You can see it in liberal mainline denominations where the authority of, of the cultural winds as they have blown, of cultural opinion, has so supplanted biblical authority That the God of the Bible, the true God of Scripture, the one who is sovereign, the one who is just, the one who has wrath, 
That God is, is rejected in these churches. You see it in the infiltration in, in our entire culture and in many so-called conservative churches of critical race theory or what they call wokeness. The gospel is not enough. You need to do the work of the anti-racist. You need to not just repent of your sins, you need to repent of the sins of your ancestors. And it really doesn't matter who your ancestors were. If you have white skin, you need to be repenting. You're brought into their guilt, and it's a perpetual thing. It's never enough. And you see how that grows and grows and grows to where the true and pure gospel of the grace of God extended to the worst of sinners is no longer tolerated. Oh, we've seen it in, in churches across this country over the last couple years where it's not enough. The gospel's not enough. We need to add to the gospel whether you do or don't wear masks. And both directions did it. Oh, you are defiled in the eyes of God if you don't wear that thing. You're defiled in the eyes of God if you wear that, you sheep. We've done it with masks. We've done it with vaccines. We just find more and more and more and more ways to heap extra laws on top of people. You see it in the evangelical churches like ours. Yes, God has spoken in the Bible, but I want to hear his voice. I want to hear God speak to me. How does Jesus respond to this? To this heaping in, to this this adding on, to this looking to other authorities outside of the pure and perfect word of God? How does he respond to these men that are gathered around him who appealed to man's authority, who tried to intimidate him, who tried to stop his preaching? Well, look in verse 6, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. How does Jesus respond? He utterly rejects their man-made religion. He wants no part of it. He doesn't even pretend to think it's got some good points to it. Their worship is in vain. It's it's only lip service. It's the faith of hypocrites. It is not from God, and it does not lead men to God. It looks like it should. Here's how much we honor God. He's given us this in his word, and we're going to build a fence way back here so no one transgresses that. It looks like it should lead men to have reverence for God. It looks very, very, very reverent, in fact, and it is irreverence. It's wickedness. It does not lead men to God. It does the opposite. It's false worship and it should be abandoned immediately. Where we see false worship, we should abandon it instantly. There's no baby in that bathwater. To borrow from the popular phrase, not to throw the baby. No, we don't want it. We, We reject it. It doesn't mean we here at Maple Grove Church think we're the only ones that are right. There are genuine Christians in every denomination. They are our brothers and our sisters, even though we disagree. We will not pretend that every denomination itself is equally valid. They are not. We won't 
We will not say that every teaching of every church is equally valid. They are not. We won't even say that all the churches in this community are good churches. They are not. We do believe there is such a thing as false religion. And there are people who sincerely and passionately believe things that are absolutely wrong. For those people, we have the utmost compassion. But the ones who teach those things are false teachers. And those who, who, who receive that teaching and practice those things are in grave danger. Well, we have to understand this because our culture is going to tell us it's not a, like I just said, not all the churches in this community are good ones. And people are like, well, that's an arrogant thing to say. The people who believe false teaching are in grave danger. They're not trusting in the gospel. It doesn't mean there aren't some people who are genuine Christians, who, have, who despite the bad teaching they've received, have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. But they are in a bad place, and we shouldn't want them to stay there. That really shouldn't be a very controversial thing to say. Wrong practices and wrong beliefs must be abandoned. The worship is false and God does not accept it. Why would we ever want someone to stay in that situation? Charles Spurgeon says it like this. If you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. Well, Spurgeon is absolutely right. We look around at these things and, and we see people who... Many of them, I think, are sincere in their false teaching. They really mean it. They even want to help people. It's no different than sincerely drinking poison. Well, I can remember one, one, once when I was a kid, Mom will be glad I shared this story, I'm sure. We learned from an Amish relative how to make two-liter pop bottle bombs. So my brother was working at a grocery store and came home with a two-liter bottle filled with a drain cleaner, set it on the kitchen table. And my mom did a thing that she's done, I believe, one time in her entire life, and she did it that night. And that is open up a bottle, a two-liter bottle, and drink straight from it. This woman would never do such a thing. She did it that night so that I could make this illustration. She thought she was drinking pop. She wasn't, she wasn't trying to be reckless. She wasn't trying to do the wrong thing. You can be as sincere as you want, but if you drink poison, it's still poison going in. These Pharisees and teachers of the law were deeply religious men, but they were absolutely wrong, damnably wrong. What is it that made their religion wrong according to Jesus? Why, why did Jesus hate the teaching of these religious men. And make no mistake about it, Jesus hates false teaching. He hated these men's teaching. He hated the fences they had built. 
First, because their religion was man-made. Verse 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. God has told us what he wants from us. He has graciously given us his word as the absolute, supreme, authoritative, infallible, unchanging, all-sufficient standard for life and worship. We don't just get to make it up as we go. We don't get to make up our own version of God and what it is that God wants from us. We don't get to make up our own morality of what is right and what is wrong and what is pleasing to God. We don't get to make up what the church is supposed to be like and what we like and what we don't like. We don't get to make up what kind of husband or wife or parent we're supposed to be. God has already spoken definitively on those things and it's perfect. Now, we might do some things in in conjunction with that to help us as individuals submit to God's word. We build our own sort of barriers that are not the authority in our life. They're just helping us to walk in obedience to God. And that's not what these Pharisees did. They constructed these walls. They added these laws. And they said, this is the authority. You are bound to it. It's a very different thing. God has given us his perfect word. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. God has given to us an unimaginable treasure. But what had the Pharisees and experts in the law done? They had let go of God's perfect word and instead clung to the commandments of men. This is better. That's what they thought. This is better. What a stupid thing to do. What a crazy thing to do when God has given you perfection. When God has given you his word to let go of that and cling to the law's and the word of men. They they spent years of their lives memorizing the traditions of men. What a waste of brain space. What a waste of effort and life. What are the greatest questions that every human wrestles with? Who am I? What does my life mean? What's, What's the purpose of life? Why are things the way they are? Why am I in the state that I'm in? What, what must I do to be saved? And where do we go to find the answers to this? Where do you go to find the answers to life's most important questions? Do you go to man's word? Do you go to man's traditions? To the thousands of religions that are out there based on man's word? To psychology, to yourself? Are you serving yourself? Are you living as your own authority? Or are you submitted to the authority of God's word? So first, Jesus hates their false teaching because it was based on the wrong authority. Man's word, not God's word. Second, their religion was with their lips and not their hearts. Verse 6, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
So not only are they dead wrong following man's religion, but it's totally superficial on top of it. And God says they are worshiping me in vain. What a scary thought that is. There's a real warning for us here, friends. God is not one to be taken lightly. God is not one to be dishonored. And to to honor God with our lips and have our hearts be far from Him makes the sovereign God of the universe angry. Do you understand that? To pay lip service to God makes God angry with you. That's terrifying. If you're only paying lip service to God, if you are taking him lightly and dishonoring his name, you could have the best theology in the world, and it only speaks to your condemnation. They were hypocrites, Jesus says. Verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Remember, this is a very public confrontation that's going on. Jesus is saying this. You're just paying lip service to God. You've abandoned his word for the words of men. You you experts in the law. You've abandoned God's law for man's law. You're hypocrites. He's, He's saying these things to these men in front of a crowd of people. This word hypocrite here, many of you have heard this. It comes from the the Greek theater. It's an actor, someone who's on stage. The actors would walk on stage carrying a mask with them at all times while they were on stage. And the various masks would reveal what kind of role they were playing, who they were impersonating. And this this word began to to morph in, in that day and become applied to someone who was a fraud, who was a fake Someone whose whole life was just an act, playing a part. Jesus says, those that honor God with their lips, those who know all the right things to say, but their hearts are far from God. They don't repent. They don't obey Him. Jesus says they're frauds. They're just acting. They're just playing a role. They just see themselves as on stage, putting a persona out. And He calls them hypocrites, because that's what they are. They're focused on keeping a massive set of external rules. They say all the right things, but their hearts have no concern for what God actually desires in his word. All they care about these rules and their own righteousness that they think they get from them. So Jesus gives them an example of one of the ways they do this. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whatever, uh, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Jesus points to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And Jesus says, to fail to do so is punishable by death. This is a command of God. Honor your father and mother. And part of honoring your father and mother is caring for them in their old age. Personally caring for them, financially caring for them. But he goes on, verse 11, But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God. And you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. So Jesus points to man's, or to God's law, honoring your father and mother, and all that's wrapped up in that. And then he says, but you got a different law. You who are so righteous. 
You've got a different law that you bind people to, this law of Corbin. Corbin is, is the Hebrew word for gift or offering. It's one of these traditions of the elders. If something became Corbin, that meant it was dedicated to God. That sounds like a good thing. I'm going to dedicate that. But, right, many of us do that with our, with our finances. I, I hope in, in, in your working through your personal finances as a family that you have, have worked that into your budget. Giving to God in obedience to his word. Sounds like a good thing, but here's the problem. During Jesus' day, there's no retirement. There's no social security. The elderly survive in one way and one way only. They are cared for by their family. It's the only way it happens. They lived with them. They're financially supported by them. And the concept of Corbin was being abused in this way. Corbin was a legal ruling on a piece of paper. It was witnessed by a scribe. It was all very official. The person still had their money. They might even use it for their own purposes. But declaring it Corbin meant no one else can benefit from it. And so it denied parents their due provision that was coming to them according to the law of God from their children. And according to the Old Testament, those who forsake their parents are like blasphemers. It dishonors God. So if a man realizes that, I've made this vow, I've taken this pledge of Corbin, but I, look, I've got to take care, you know, my father died and I need to take care of my mother. And he wants to change his mind. He wanted to be obedient to Scripture and care for his parents. He had to then go to the Pharisees to cancel Corbin. And he was fined for that. He was fined 50 shekels. And if he was married, his wife was fined 30 shekels on top of it. About a year's wages. It cost you about a year's wages to be obedient to God to break one of our rules. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were binding people with their man-made traditions to serve their own greedy hearts. And Jesus really lays into them, verse 12, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus, you are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. He's saying this in front of a group of people to the most powerful men in Judaism. He's angry about this. It's not just a matter of some extra rules. This is an affront to the word of God. They are binding men's consciences, making them blasphemers. And he says, this is just one example of many. This is one example. And so he looks these Jerusalem leaders in the eye and he says to them, you're hypocrites. That's courageous preaching. That is bold preaching. It's the kind of preaching that will cost you something. It's the kind of preaching our world calls hateful, judgmental, unloving. It's the kind of preaching that gets people killed. It's the kind of preaching that costs the reformers their lives was that kind of preaching. And this confrontation is a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. From, he's at the height of his popularity, and from this moment on, his popularity steadily decreases. It ultimately ends in his crucifixion. Crucified by who? By these guys. By these religious leaders. They're the ones who drove his crucifixion. I don't mean it was this, you know, 
this specific group of unnamed men. But it, but it was these people, it was the religious leaders of Judaism that, that crucified the Lord. It was those who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them, from him. And when we read these words that Jesus speaks to them, it's not mere historical exploration. It speaks to our modern life. It speaks to our modern worship. There is real warning here for us. John MacArthur says this, God's name, I think, is taken more times in vain in churches than anywhere else. The blasphemy in the sanctuary is worse than the blasphemy in the street. Empty ceremony, superficial worship, thoughtless praise, errant doctrine, love of error, indifferent prayer, phony ritual. These things abound and they mark hypocrites. 100% right. What makes a hypocrite is someone who worships God with their lips when their hearts are far from him. And Jesus says that worship is in vain. It's worthless. God doesn't receive it. It's clear that God hates it. How do we know then if, if our worship is in vain or not? The true worship comes from the heart. True worship comes from the heart because we love God and it results in obedience to Scripture. If we love God, we will love His Word. If we love His Word, we will obey His Word. So as the Apostle Paul tells us, we can examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. True, true religion is humble love for and delight in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It is humble love for and delight in Christ who loved us and gave his life for us, who will surely return for us. It is humble love for and delight in the Holy Spirit for the beauty of his holiness. It's love for and delight in our triune God for his sovereign majesty. And this humble love for God leads to a humble love for his word, to submission to him and to his word. It, is, it causes us to, to obey the word of God. And friend, if that's not you, I need to warn you. Jesus knows who are his. We see this in this scene. Is Jesus stands with these men who are an example of, of true and pure religion from the outside to all who look. And Jesus knows who are his. And he knew these men were hypocrites. They didn't escape. No hypocrite ever escapes. He knows. He knew their heart. And he knows your heart. He knows if you love him. He knows if you worship him from the heart or if you're just paying lip service. He knows if you're a hypocrite. And if you are, you are in some bad company. The truth is we all have the possibility of being hypocrites. Of, of, of worship that is superficial. Of making it all about us. All of us have our preferences, don't we? We have a preferred style of music. We have a preferred style of service. We have a preferred temperature we want to see this room at. 
We all have preferences. That's not being a hypocrite. But when those things define our worship, it is hypocritical. When those things become hindrances to our worship, that is hypocritical. When we make it all about us. It's possible for all of us to know and say the right things about God with hearts that at that moment are far from Him. That's hypocrisy. What's the solution for all of it? What's the solution for the person whose whole life is defined by hypocrisy or the solution for the Christian who just sometimes falls into it like I do? It's all the same. It's repentance. It would be a shame not to quote Martin Luther on Reformation Sunday. The whole life of the Christian is to be one of repentance. But look at this testimony from this Pharisee. Just like the ones we read about, you could even say, you could even say a greater transgressor of God's law than they were. One who took these, these traditions of men, the word of man, so seriously that he was willing to murder for it. And we have his testimony. And he says this, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. That by any means possible, I may attain a resurrection from the dead. This is the testimony of Saul of Tarsus. Pharisee's Pharisee. A hypocrite of the highest order. And when God, in his mercy, allowed him to see that for what it was, he rejected it. He renounced it. When he finally saw it for what it was, he called it rubbish. The Greek word he uses there is used one time in all of Scripture. Scubula. It's a strong word for manure. That's how I see it. That's what it is. Why? Because he had discovered the surpassing worth of Christ. He discovered a righteousness that was not his own, but came from outside of him. It didn't come from his works. It came from God by faith in Christ. It's the same thing that Luther discovered 1,500 years later. Hypocrite, repent. Hypocrites desperately need to repent. But know this, there is forgiveness. And, and Saul of Tarsus, 
The hypocrite's hypocrite puts himself forward in Scripture and says, if God will do this for me, the chief of sinners, well, then you can come too, and he'll have you. You need to hear that. The sin of hypocrisy is one that God forgives all the time. Just repent of your self-made religion. Ask God to cleanse you of your sin. And like he did for the Apostle Paul, for Saul of Tarsus, ask him to give you eyes to see the truth. To cause you to love him by his spirit. To amaze you with his love and mercy in Christ. It is far, far better. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us. Lord, we don't want to be worshipers of the Bible. We want to be such worshipers of you that we cherish your word, that we humbly submit ourselves to your word. Knowing, Lord, that we can't pull you apart from your word as if it's, as if it's two different things and we can accept you, but we don't want your truth. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We glory in you. We repent of our hypocrisy. Lord, it so easily creeps in. Pray that by your spirit you would sustain us and uphold us. Thank you for your promise to do just that for all who belong to you. Pray that you would be glorified in us and through us. Give us boldness to proclaim this pure, this gracious gospel that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.